Hey folks, welcome to another episode of the Jackson Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast. I am your co-host, Chris Papa. I'm alone right here. I'll just me and Julio. Say hi, Julio. Julio doesn't talk. Oh, there he goes. Uh, we're excited to launch the Impact Real Estate Podcast Summer Series, where we bring back some of our favorite interviews from the previous iteration of this podcast. Over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to be reintroducing you to some of the titans of our industry with the hope that their stories will continue to impact all of you. As always, any love you can send the podcast via like, share, comment, or review across iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or the jacksonlucas.com website is always appreciated. For now, thanks for tuning in and have a great summer. Today, we have a very special guest, Mr. Tim Henkel. Tim is the SVP at Penrose, based out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. How are you doing, Tim? I'm doing well. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate you coming on here. It's uh, August 13th, 2020, still COVID times. And I am uh, once again in my San Mateo, California bunker. Um, and Tim, you, you said that you're upstate? Yeah, I'm I'm hidden away in uh in the Adirondacks near Lake George. That's pretty cool. It's a lot of people where I live are up in Tahoe. That's kind of like the Adirondacks of the West, I guess. It seems like a lot of people are going up to Adirondacks on the East Coast. Yeah, very very similar feel. Do you, when you're walking around outside, do you see your neighbors from Philadelphia? Uh, no, <laughs> uh, they're good people, but uh, I leave them behind. <laughs> Well, I, thanks for joining us today. And so you were at Penrose. I mean, Penrose is a very large affordable housing developer and management company, right? I mean, can you just explain to the, the audience about Penrose? Yeah, sure. So Penrose uh, has been in existence um, for almost 40 years. Um, and so we've had an evolution of partnerships, but started in Philadelphia as a, um, a your sort of traditional historic rehab specialist. Uh, the 1986 tax act that birthed the low income housing tax credit program, um, changed the, you know, the trajectory of Penrose sort of forever. Um, we became affordable housing developers and, um, and combined that with our historic rehabilitation specialty and then evolved from there, um, geographically and, um, and with the type of developments that we were, that we were specializing in. So, you know, soon came new construction, soon came interest in, uh, neighboring states, New Jersey and Maryland, Delaware. Um, and then we've, we've grown and grown from there. Um, our growth pattern has been, um, by seeding regional, uh, vice presidents in specific places. So creating, um, boots on the ground with the philosophy that development is a very, very locally executed, um, business, uh, especially on the new construction side. Um, so we now have six regional offices, um, at present, um, up and down the East coast. And then how many units do you guys own and manage now? How big, how big are you guys approximately? Well, we, uh, so we've done, uh, we've built about 17, 18,000 units. Um, we self-manage, uh, about 60% of those, about 9,000 units under management. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's something that's growing at about a thousand to 1500 unit a year clip. You are, you're involved in the development side, correct? Yes, correct. So what is the, I mean, I, what is the difference between affordable housing development and market rate development? What are the differences in how the project is, is done and, and entitled and all that jazz? I mean, it seems like 
I mean, the, the product is, I mean, the, the tenant, I guess the, the final products, it looks similar, right? Um, one is subsidized, you know, the, the, the residents are, seem to have subsidized housing or something along those lines. Like, but what is it like during the development process? Like, what's the difference yeah. there? Yeah, it might be easier to talk about the similarities. The, di- the differences are, are many, right? Yeah. Um, so, right, physically, the, the, the product can be very, very similar. You know, we're creating a multifamily housing opportunity. We're working really hard to make sure the quality of product, the drive-by visibility um, is every bit what uh, a market rate developer um, would create and what a market rate product would be. And we do have market rate, you know, developments in our portfolio. Um, there may be some differences product-wise in some of the, the very, very, very flashy amenities that some of the very, very, very market rate, you know, housing development. Mm-hmm. Have. Um, but for the most part, we're amenitizing at a pretty high level and, and attributing space to community buildings, fitness rooms, gyms, things like that. Um, the differences, you know, do come in the income restrictions. So the, um, the, the simplest difference is that we're not allowing ourselves to rent, um, to people who make certain certain incomes, and it's a calculated uh, number based on area median income. So it's not the same uh, rental rate every place. It depends on what the what the median incomes are, where where your project is going to be, um, and you know, market rate development is, doesn't have that restriction. Hmm. Uh, in exchange for doing that, we're using affordable housing resources, and the one that we all talk about often is the low-income housing tax credit, um, federal credit. Many states have state credits that are used in combination, um, and that that tax credit, um, in order by obligating yourself and agreeing, hey, we're going to rent to an income level that's at a certain cap, um, we're we're granted or compete for and <laughs> are awarded um, low-income housing tax credits, which become then. 70, 75% of the capital stack of, of that project. Um, and so that's, you know, that's the big difference is that um, the capital stack looks much different. Um, capital stack on a market rate project, is you know, 65, 75, 80% debt, yeah. um, depending on what, <laughs> what part of the real estate cycle you're in when that, when that property gets put in place. Um, it's almost the inverse um, on a low-income housing tax credit or affordable housing project. And then are you, who, how are you competing for those tax credits? Are you competing against other developers? Like what are they, what are the tax, who is giving these tax credits out and like, what are they looking for? Right. Why, why, do, why do they award them? So it's a federal tax credit, but the allocation is given to each state on a per capita basis. So a state with a large population has a lot of tax credits to dole out, smaller population, smaller volume of tax credits. And those states use something called a qualified allocation plan. That qualified allocation plan basically sets out the rules by which those tax credits are are distributed. And that's where a lot of public policy comes into play. Each state will say, hey, we we would like to use this resource in order to create affordable housing, but we want to create it in certain certain spaces, places, in certain instances. Um, And that's where, you know, that's where the competition starts. Um, So those rules manifest themselves in in a scoring system. Um, scoring, you know, can be location-based, uh, a lot of criteria are readiness-based, so they don't want to allocate tax credits to somebody who's not ready to use them right away. Um, and we then, yes, compete against other developers who are trying to get those tax credits and each state will kind of have a little bit of a, um, a little bit of trailing history that they can communicate to you as to, Hey, for every $2 of tax credits requested, we give out one tax credit. 
or three to one or four to one. Um, and that's one that that competitive landscape is something that um, has been increasing more and more. Those credits are, are they're all that's out there in, in many cases. And so um, projects will live or die as to whether or not they can they can get them. And so we've built our business around making sure we compete well. We know the rules, you know, and and um, and put together competitive applications. So it's like a report card, basically. It's a uh, it's worse than that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, a, a tax credit application is a pretty intense thing to prepare. Um, there are a lot of consultants who help developers prepare uh, tax credit applications. We internalize that that process um, and implement a lot of quality control measures to make sure that um, that our efforts. Um, at least, you know, I mean, you, you could put a perfect application in and lose just because there are so many other perfect, perfect applications, you know, joining you. But we need, we really work hard to make sure that um, that we've got it pretty buttoned up. And where do you? I mean, what do you look for when you're looking for a development project? And like, how do you know where to go? And like, where they're going to be? Because not every community wants affordable housing built there, right? Or or is there like a mandate for certain communities to have a certain amount or something like that? Like, how do you know where to build? Yeah, it's an interesting couple layers that you put on top of each other. So I just described, hey, there's a point system in each state that says this is how you compete for tax credits. So we take that point system and we we, we kind of use it as our divining rod and say, well, we're certainly not going to try and initiate a, a, an affordable housing development someplace where it can't score, can't compete and get can't get these tax credits. So that's that's job one. Then, so you say you found a place that scores perfectly, and sometimes intentionally, those are very hard places to develop. There's a lot. Mm-hmm. There's potentially some opposition. There's some difficulty in in um, finding a site that people won't object to, whether it's uh, you know immediate neighbors or um, or other criteria. Um, and the places that affordable housing tends to have happened very readily are the places that you know other market forces haven't necessarily picked up. The affordable housing development can't afford to pay a ton of money for that land. Um, so the path of least resistance is often municipalities who have um, come to the realization that affordable housing is something they need, something they want, something that is the lack of is causing displacement, causing people who, you know, the next generation who would love to live in town has to leave town because there is an affordable ha- option in town. Mm. A, an, an elderly generation that would like some senior affordable housing. So those those are the places where we tend to want to go and try and do affordable housing. And that's, you know, that again is kind of the path of least resistance in the place where some pretty other healthy competitions go on between ourselves and other developers to get those opportunities. Because basically you've got a place saying we've already built the consensus around this use in this location. We just need somebody to execute it for us. Mm. Now, the other thing we do is go to places and say, Hey, you really could use affordable housing. We become like the, you know, we, we like that spark and spend a little more time and engender the, you know, the, the rationality and, and try and educate folks on, look, it can be really nice. Don't be afraid of it. You know, you want us to do this. You need it. We've checked your demographics. You're losing people. Um, you're not providing this opportunity. You have a, you have a great downtown that could use to be livened up with some bodies um, okay. and, and talk about the economic power development power of of an affordable housing development in certain cases those are exciting projects and those are the ones we you know we really enjoy the most they have a real spillover effect they you know many of our employees come from planning backgrounds and um public policy backgrounds and they're really they they know 
what the what kind of vitality can come with a with a development located in the right place. Yeah, speaking of a specific project, are there some or, or one that kind of stands out to you? Like this was like a we got this done. It was really hard to get through, and just it sticks out in your mind. Well, there's no like <laughs> your your listeners won't hear me roll my eyes. Um, <laughs> the, the eye roll um, kind of goes uh, with the you know so the the complexity implication there is that you know the, the, you know right now there there are no easy projects um, because of the layers of financing that have to be put in place and because of some of the um, you know some of the uh, there's a little toxicity in the environment right now we're facing. Mm-hmm. You know, it won't be an unfamiliar word to anybody. Really, the NIMBYism is is kind of on the rise, um, which may come with a with a with a YIMBY, a yes in my backyard kind of backlash. I'm kind of hopeful about that. Um, but yeah, that we, there's there's a project that uh, I guess for whatever reason is one of the first that jumps to my mind um, because it's 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 had that you know kind of that lifetimes of life. Um, which is a project that um, we've completed two phases, at least some up in Meriden, Connecticut, um, suburban Hartford, if you will, um, to the extent that Hartford gets to have suburbs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but that, that it, it, a town that had a downtown had um, a mall that got, uh, um, that basically had been built over a storm sewer pipe, a large storm sewer pipe that then with development and increased um, water flow, that mall flooded three or four times and mm-hmm. it got together two or three times <laughs> yeah. and then finally it got demolished. And then finally it became an army Corps of engineering project. And then along the way, um, we were asked to, um, be the kind of the go between we're selected by the local housing authority, um, and the city in combination, um, to help effectuate a land swap between those two entities to get housing authority property, out of the way of the flood control project and to get city property into the relocation destination um all the while with this flood control project becoming this beautiful reclaimed and recovered park um with a beautiful stream that runs in between and runs a little high sometimes (laughs) but is but is now also the downtown it's at the train station we're seating retail there we've occupied over 150 units of of housing there um and then we're looking around and really eager to see, you know, the, the next, the next thing happening, the economic development kind of part of that, those bodies are shoppers, that's disposable income. Yes, they're affordable residents, but they, they absolutely are, are people who eat, shop, consume, um, and can really get a, uh, get a downtown going again. So, you know, that's one that's, that's one that's, uh, it's got some beautiful imagery. Uh, the architecture we accomplished is very, you know, very cool. And the park is, you know, a beautiful thing as well. And I think whenever you kind of uh, seen the fruits of real collaboration, where we kind of had to lock arms and trust each other um, in ways that maybe hadn't happened before, that there's something really uh, um, special about that feeling. It's like, hey, that was worth it. You know, that was that was hard, but that was worth it. And um, those tend to be their, your better groundbreakings and grand openings. And um, people there in that in that city and in that state should be really proud of what they accomplished. It seems like a lot of your job is bringing people together. Is that most of what, I mean, maybe nobody knows what, how, what a developer actually really does, but like, are you out there like talking to different municipalities and different, uh, maybe in the, do you work with like nonprofit groups too in, in the affordable housing world? And then you got to bring the architects in. like, what is a, 
what does an affordable housing developer do? Like, yeah. what's your job? Well, uh, so like, you know, we often have our own vision of how things can be done and where our development could go and what it could look like and all those kinds of things. But I would say that, you know, it, it is true that most of the time we're hearing someone else's vision and turning it into a feasible reality and hopefully not leaving much or any of that vision on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of nonprofits are, are behaving, you know, and operating very locally and executing some of those visions there. I mean, they're chartered to meet existing need. And then many times they get to the point where we go, we know exactly what we need to do. And we know definitely we can't do it on our own. Mm. Um, and, you know, we, we love to be there when that next question is asked, who can help us do this or what will we do? Uh, and um, so as developers, we contribute a ton of time to that conversation. Yes, it's it often leads to business, but it sure doesn't always lead to business. It sometimes leads to a competitive process that picks somebody else. Yeah. Um, but um, certainly being at that early stage and meeting the people who have decided in their heart of hearts and in their nonprofit volunteering and their boards to, you know, to do this um, is is um, that's a pretty powerful moment because you're you're really at the at the very start of a of a building process where the building process itself is the very end. You know, yeah. that's the finish line. I, I'll tell you about one project or that that we've well, a couple of projects that we've done, but we've been working really actively in um, in the Boston area on a project um, that is targeting LGBTQ uh, seniors in mm-hmm. an affordable setting. Um, but that project started with a uh, LGBTQ task force that came and visited an LGBTQ senior building that we did in Philadelphia with another partner. And so they heard about it, came down, visited our property, um, and then spent some time trying to figure out how in Boston or the Boston area they could you know, cite something like that. Um, and, uh, and they found... Uh, a recently vacated school building. Uh, it's called the William Barton Rogers School um, in, a, in an area of, of Boston that is just like perfect. Mm. Uh, a structure of, you know, one of the most beautiful buildings I've ever seen. Um, and that is thankfully um, converting very nicely in our design process. Um, we're not yet funded. We're not yet near closing, but we're, you know, we're working hard and it has a ton of support. Um because it will not only serve a population that um, that task force has wanted to serve, but that you know a good part of uh, of Boston you know is is eager to to show their support for you know so that kind of consensus building is is a lot what we do. Um, but then also, as many schools will, there there are a lot of accessory spaces that won't convert to housing, but will convert um, to house some other nonprofits. So some community groups that will. Um, you know, take up residence in the space. And so you could just imagine and then the activity that goes on and the focal point that it can be for the community. And, you know, people start to get goosebumps. We're, you know, we're really, really excited about it. And we have many projects that start that way. In fact, in Cincinnati, on the heels of some of the, um, some of the work that, uh, that have been done, you know, with a product like that in Philadelphia and in Boston, you know, sure enough, in Cincinnati, there's a group that wants to do exactly the same thing. And we are. So, sounds well, extremely rewarding beyond just being like a job, right? It sounds- uh, yeah. Yeah. I think you'll find um, in this industry, there are a lot of, uh, uh, I, ca- I call them life's work people. You know, people are not, you know, kind of trying to get, you know, from, from the beginning to the end of the career with enough money to retire. Um, 
you know, they're, they're really working for the, you know, for the work um, and for the outcome and the impact. Um, and it makes for like you talked, we had talked earlier about the competitive atmosphere, you know, you're competing against other developers for the opportunity to do a, you know, work on behalf of the city. You're competing for the, for the funding, competing, competing, competing. Yeah. I would say like it's a, it's a pretty um, friendly competition. You know, we root for each other's successes. Maybe not, maybe not <laughs> of our own, um, but it's not hard to be happy about um, uh, projects that other people can complete. You know, we, yeah. we, we are, we are fighting an uphill battle. Um, the demand for affordable housing is, is exceeding the pace of our, our ability to supply um, for lots of different reasons. Um, but, uh, you know, it, we're, when you, when you meet the residents and you speak to the, you know, and when you hear them speak about the impact that, that um, an affordable housing opportunity gives them, it's, it's almost like, okay, now that I've got this part figured out, I can focus on, you know, my kid's education, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, you, you name it. It's just like, you know, if you can fix one thing, you know, the next thing can follow. And uh, for so many people, you know, that the housing is, is block building block number one. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, what comes along with it is a lot of, uh, a lot of health benefits, you know, so there's a, just a ton of wellness that goes into um, that moment of relocation. When that person moves into one of our new affordable housing developments, you know, so many times where they're moved out of is such a substandard condition. And, you know, I say substandard, you know, we all think leaky pipes, but in many cases, it's an overcrowded situation. It's a, it's, it's, you know, they're living in someone's basement. They're, you know, two households crammed into one, and now, now they can separate. Um, and you know, we all know that overcrowding right now is is a real um, negative health determinant, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, we totally. Yes, exactly. That's that's the moment we're in. So yeah, so the the people who you know. The people who work for us and for other developers, but um, certainly for for the people that we employ, and the, you know, the, when when we're interviewing folks, um, we're talking to people who really kind of they're, they're they're coming at this for a reason. There probably other other ways for them to make a living um, and maybe make a better living, um, but uh, but they they want things to matter, um, and that's uh, you know they want their day to day to matter. They want to be able to look at what we've accomplished and you know, see who's benefiting from it. And, um, uh, you know, they're, the, the interesting thing is those rewarding moments are the development process is slow. Yeah. You know? So, you know, to, 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 to get to that first, um, occupancy of the, of, as a, as a newer developer, to get to the first occupancy of a development that you really did start from the very beginning, you know, you mm-hmm. would think the idea like came about, um, you know, at, you know, at the, at the Genesis, as they say, um, you know, that, that probably is somebody who's worked for our company for three or four years. Yeah. <laughs> We've seen a lot of completions. They've seen a lot of things open, but not the one that they started on. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I love that moment, you know, and, and, and I think we work really hard to make sure what we see it coming for, for newer and younger developers and that we, um, give them the opportunity to let it sink in and, and, and you know, you got to feel good. There's a, there are a lot of hard days in between. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so watching them feel good is pretty exciting. 
That's awesome. Is there a difference in how, like you get, you guys do a lot of new development. Do you guys do like a preservation of affordable housing too? Is that we do. separate? Yeah, we do. Um, our, our, most of our preservation work has been in the RAD space. RAD is the uh, rental assistance demonstration program that is converting um, public housing uh, to a public private partnership. Um, and, uh, and so we, you know, with that conversion of the subsidy comes the ability to, uh, re recapitalize, um, mm -hmm. to add that, to resyndicate some tax credits, 4% tax credits, put that money back into, um, a rehabilitated development. Um, and that's a different animal because those are often occupied properties. Sometimes there's a temporary relocation, but sometimes it's in place rehab. Um, and we're, you know, we're doing one of those right now in New York city and it's, it's large scale. And so it's a, uh, it's a uniquely different thing in that, um, when you close the transaction, you immediately have a fully occupied property as opposed yeah. to a new construction development where, um, you know, you have a year of construction or so to get ready, um, for that new population. So that's a, it's a different animal. Um, and it's, uh, uh, there are things I love about it actually, you know, and, and, and I guess, you know, one of the things would be just what I was saying is that that proximity to the impacted um, residents, the resident population that is inherited and, and the ability to kind of take charge and, and fix some things immediately that were the, you know, the pain points of potentially the relationship between, you know, prior, prior ownership and prior management. You know, that's, that's good for everybody. When you're a developer in this world, is there, are there some people that just do new development and some do preservation or is it kind of like a mixed match or is it, is it separated generally? I think we all have our, you know, our, our bias in one direction or the other. I think that, you know, that, um, nobody, I, I think it's very rare to find a developer who started out doing both. Yeah. Um, uh, and even if you throw market rate development in there, whether it's, you know, new construction or rehabilitation, you know, nope. True, yeah. we started doing everything at once. And so we all have our history, the place we came from and those, you know, those starting points tend to be, you know, always core competencies and, you know, and, and true skills. So, for, you know, for us, it was, as I said before, it was historic rehab affordable. So that kind of rehabilitation, which is major rehabilitation, we're talking gut rehabs, we're using mm -hmm. historic tax credits, uh, and then new construction affordable, and then preservation affordable, mm -hmm. um, you know, with some market rate, opportunity, what we call opportunistic market rate in between, where we saw ourselves creating some value and creating an opportunity to nearby or next to uh, some of our affordable housing developments to put up market rate uh, product and, you know, where we knew the market really well. Um, but, you know, we still are at our roots, what we started out as. Yeah. Speaking of starting out as, I mean, how did you start out? What, where did this, where did this interest in affordable housing or development come from? Did you grow up in a family that did that or? Yeah. No. Where, did you just fall into it somehow? <laughs> Uh, well, I guess everybody, you know, the, everybody has their windy path. Um, now, you know, as a, I, I went to school as an engineer, you know, so I, I graduated from Bucknell as a civil engineer and I got into engineering, you know, without a lot of like, I knew that's what I wanted to do. It's more like, yeah. hey, hey kid, you just graduated from high school. You're good in math, good in science. You should be a civil engineer. You like to be my, out my dad and my sister are civil engineers. So I know the type. <laughs> Good okay. math, good science, like to be outside, you're a civil engineer. <laughs> and then you set out to prove that that was a good decision. And, uh, yeah, that's exactly right. 
I, you know, I really enjoyed, I enjoyed the education. I enjoyed my time there. I worked as an engineer for a number of years and, and kind of realized that engineering management and the future of, you know, even if I were to be the owner of an engineering company, it wasn't really going to be the right thing for me. Yeah. I really, the, the people who hired me, the people I worked for were great people. Um, and that was a hard, you know, reckoning to say, all right, I, I'm going to, I'm going to shift gears here. And I, uh, but what had happened is I become exposed to some developers. Um, and I could tell that their financial savvy and their kind of knowledge and their ability to take what to me seemed like incredible risks um, was all based on really just, a, a, you know, a real evaluation and understanding of financial risk. And, you know, so at that time, that was 1998, that's that the, the formula for that problem was an MBA. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, I would still stand by the quality of, a, of, a, of an MBA. But at that point, you know, that was a pretty common thing for people to do. So I went, you know, studied finance and entrepreneurism and, um, and graduated from uh, the Simon School, which is uh, the University of Rochester. Um, spent Are you living a- in Rochester? Are you from Rochester? Are you living up there? No, you know, I, I've, I've always had a, a New York State poll I did in my early childhood, live, lived upstate. And so, oh, okay. I, you know, it was a place that felt good to me. Um, my wife was working at the time uh, in, in a job that had her traveling upstate in the financial industry. So it made sense for us to to relocate there. Um, they had an 18 month program, which meant I could get in, you know, effectively mid year and started, um, in January. So it was, a my first semester was the second semester of a traditional two, two, uh, two year program. And that, you know, by the time I decided that I needed to make a change and then also I was in a big hurry to make the change. So that, that <laughs> program was really, really perfect for me. Um, you know, as is the case, you know, I, I, I stick a lot of loyalty in the places that I touch. And so um, I continue to be involved with uh, the Simon, the Simon School. Um, I'm on their alumni board and uh, I would, would tell you it's a fantastic place. Uh, undergrad and graduate school to, to go yeah. to school. Very diverse university um, with a lot of schools. And so once there, you know, I was there with the goal of becoming a developer, but most of my colleagues were there with the goals of becoming, you know, analysts on, you know, on Wall Street or consultants with the big, you know, the big five consulting firms or into big uh, CFO positions and things like that. Um, so our, you know, I was a little bit of an outlier. Um, so my career search was uh, very self-directed. I, of course, went back to the developer clients that I had as an engineer, did a lot of informational interviewing, and it was sort of, it was a... Yeah, you don't want to work here, but you know you might want to talk to kind of thing that got me um, got me a meeting with Rich Barnhart, who's our CEO and now my partner. Um, one of my partners, the other is Mark Danley, and um, uh, I got them on the phone and you know quickly had an interview. Came down and um, we were at the time in one of the office towers in um, in Philadelphia, one Liberty Place, and I was awestruck with the fact that, you know, and all the while, of course, researching affordable housing, what is it, you know, yeah. <laughs> I know you know, taking those, you know, the, the, the quick affordable housing for dummies course, just to really, you, you couldn't really Google back then. though. No, no, very little. <laughs> we had the internet back then, but it yeah. was, wasn't, I mean, <laughs> but um, yeah. And, and, and I was just, I, I thought the intersection of, um, of a, um, of a company that was exercising really financial skills um, with powerful, positive impact, um, you, know, you know, with, you know, the touch of the, not the engineering background that I had, but the physical development part of it, I, you know, 
there was something about, you know, about never leaving an actual product behind. I really wanted to have a product. I didn't want to be in a, not that, not that our banker friends don't have products, but like, yeah. I, I need to be able to touch it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so like all of a sudden my eyes were opened to the potential that, um, you know, that I could, that I could, I could invest myself in this kind of career. And of course, I got the pat on the back and the walk down the hall and yeah, well, sorry, we're not hiring right now. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that, that came back around. I, uh, I almost took another job and right at the last minute I got, uh, I got a, I got a worse offer from the perfect, you know, the perfect job at Penrose and, uh, and, and I took it. Um, you've been there 20, over 20 years now, right? Yeah. You're a, par- you're a partner in the firm. I'm a partner. I became a partner in 2007. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, that was, that was, uh, that, that was a, obviously an important moment for me and, and, you know, uh, something I, you know, remain grateful to my partners now for, you know, I, I, um, I had a pretty clear feeling in my gut that I, you know, not only did I want to do this forever, but I wanted to do it on my own behalf. And I thought that I could do that best with Penrose and at Penrose. And mm-hmm. fortunately, they, they agreed, um, because, uh, I don't know what the other path would have held for me, but, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I heard this from a, from a, uh, regional vice president of ours as we were interviewing him. And when he accepted the job, he said something to me that I realized was the reason I accepted, uh, the job at Penrose and sought out a partnership there. Um, he said, you know, the reason I'm going to accept this job, I've talked to my family is because I know I can produce more affordable housing with you than I could on my own or on a different path. And, uh, yeah. And so, you know, volume counts in this business, you know, certainly, you know, that's, that's how we keep the lights on and that kind of thing. But it also, it's a, it's a measurement of what, what we've accomplished and, um, and the people we've, um, we've accomplished it on behalf, you know, so that's, that was my motivation at the time. What, I mean, that's great. I mean, you've been there. I mean, most people, today i've been in my company for 15 years right um and people are like wow i can't believe you've been there that long like there's a lot of moving around i mean what what kind of mentality do you think you bring or you brought early on in your career that kind of kept you there like made them say hey tim we want tim to be here for a long time like what what did you bring to the table oh uh well i don't know i don't know if i want to put myself fully in their heads but um, (laughs) uh i I would would, well I would say that for sure, um, this job has not been the same one year to the next and that Penrose has been working towards its next, um, you know, its next generation, its next, um, you know, definition, you know, for lack of a better word all the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I was kind of doing that, you know, I wanted to be, I wanted to be more of a developer. I wanted to be, you know, more responsible. I wanted to, you know, so, you know, there's a little bit of that drive goes a long way, you know, in a company. Um, and so when we were a, you know, three or four development a year firm, you know, that was great, but wasn't it great the year we did 10 deals in a year for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do we, and you know, that's where I got really interested is then um, the company that can do one or two deals a year is not the company that can do 10 deals a year. So when you're going to do 10 deals a year, what do you have to change? What about your management model? I don't mean the management company of the properties, but your management of your business, you know, what, mm-hmm. what do you need to change? How do you need to restructure? How, you know, what do you, what do you need to show as an infrastructure to banks? So they'll lend to you comfortably when you've got that kind of volume. Um, and I enjoyed, you know, sort of 
involving myself in some of those conversations or opining on those things. And, um, and it was a little bit of the things I had learned in business school and maybe more specifically learned from my classmates in business school. Cause those, that's where a lot of the learning takes place. Mm. Um, and that, that, um, I think that then became, um, that's how I started to present some value to, um, Rich and Mark as partners then, you know, as a potential partner for them for the future. Um, because, you know, it was, it was clear that I was not just, you know, part of the energy that would build, you know, next, next generations of businesses, but also I was, I had an interest in it and interested in seeing, you know, what it could become. Um, and that's been really, you know, that's been really exciting. The exciting part about it is now the people who have come along, you know, the people who work for us and the people we get to work with, um, it's a great cast of characters. Yeah. Do you think having, I mean, development, people in development come from all different types of backgrounds, right? Like my uncle's a big developer. He's, he was a lawyer. Um, some people just, I think my, my grandfather was a developer. I don't think he graduated college, even went to college. Right. And so, I mean, do you think having, uh, you know, engineering background is, in, was beneficial, is beneficial. And what do you, what would you say to those people who are, are engineers right now? And they're like, man, how do, how do I get into, I want to be like Tim, how do I get into development? Like, what do you, what do you suggest to them? Yeah, the cracking question is a pretty. How, how do I crack in? How do I get get in there? Um, you know, I would. It's it's. I can't find necessarily. There's not another guy in our company who was an engineer, MBA, became a developer. So I'd hardly say that's the only way to become a developer. It's just one of the ways. The way it's where I came from and you know where I ended up. Um, but if you are that engineer, or that that young version of of me now, um, or anybody else, I would, the answer is still the same. Um, you you know. You gotta learn. You gotta learn the business from the outside a little bit, um, and and then convince. You know, if you're if you're if you're interviewing with us, convince us that you know this is what you want to do. Um, because if there's one thing about all those different development people that you just referenced and the, those folks that you've crisscrossed, um, is that they're all in. You know, it's you, you just, it's not it's it's not a dabbling profession. Um, it, there are, there are intense moments, there are late nights, there are, you know, um, and, and there are schedules that, that get dictated to you as opposed to schedules that, um, that you get to control. Um, and so you gotta know, you want to know what you're signing on for. Um, and then, you know, and then there's the actual, you know, raw skill set that is, that is really important. Um, financial acumen, I think is, you know, that's the, um, that's the entry card in our, in our office. We need, you know, we need to know people know a pro forma. Um, you know, when, when, um, when I was doing my research in order to have that interview and not sound like a complete, you know, <laughs> greeny, I, um, uh, the question that, uh, that, you know, I was told by someone, look, if you can learn affordable housing finance, you can do any kind of real estate finance. Um, yeah. and which isn't entirely true. Um, because there, <laughs> well, because there's absolute specialty in, you know, in, in market rate real estate and, and in every other real estate sector, office and industrial that are every bit as complicated. Um, but the complexity of, of the capital stacks we put together tends, tends to, um, require a skill set where, you know, people who are, who are going to sit down and, and look at the pro forma and look at the budgets that get a bond deal done. Um, they have to have special aptitude, you know, and if they're just interested, <laughs> they're, they're yeah. missing an ingredient, you know? Yeah. Awesome. An amazing story. Thank you. Um, are you ready for the hot seat? Hmm. The hot seat. You feel hot? You're getting hot in here? 
Yeah. <laughs> the hot seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofits, startups, and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities reduce turnover and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com, k-k-r-e-s-e-t.com. These are these are the last five questions I ask uh, all my guests. Sometimes six, depending on uh, if I'm in the mood. Now, any any books you recommend, whether it's affordable housing, real estate, life, you name it. Any books that you you go to? Uh, well, I, so I'm a I. This is I, I'm a, I'm really concerned about sounding cliche about my book selection. <laughs> Don't worry about it. I'm, I'm, I really love the, the good to great, you know, kind of books. I love Michael Lewis books mm-hmm. and the, the, um, the book that I would recommend right now is not necessarily an industry book, but it's a, it's a topical book as, um, uh, am I forgetting the name of the book? The fifth risk. It's oh, a Michael, no, I don't know. Oh, the fifth risk. It's amazing. And it, and it really, you know, maybe at a moment, um, when we all need it, it'll give you some faith back in government because it, it, it tells the story of what, um, you know, what all those complicated departments, you know, actually do and um, why it is that, um, historically our government has been the innovator, why the department of energy has created, you know, so much innovation, you know, um, even the CDC, um, and, and some of the safeguards that have been put in place, some of them somewhat demand dismantled today, um, that would have that, you know, intellectual power survive administrations, you know, the, the, you know, so the fifth risk is really about the, it's about the handoff of, of one administration to the other. Um, it's a little bit scary, um, because it's, I'm going to, I know I just wrote it down. I'm going to order it. Yeah. After this. Uh, you, you'll enjoy it. It's, uh, yeah, you, you'll, you'll have a hard time putting it down. Do you, I usually ask if there's any podcasts, but now that we're in like this COVID time and everyone's trying to find different tv series to watch have you been watching any good tv series no nothing no i'm really (laughs) i'm a really bad tv watcher so i I, like i am unable to binge beyond like the fourth or fifth fifth episode i just uh, you know i fall apart i do listen to podcasts though like and and, go for it well so the, the guy who's got me hooked right now is um he's a um He's a Stern School of Business, NYU Business School. He's a, um, a marketing professor named Scott Galloway. So he does, it's the Prof G podcast. Okay. And he kind of starts it off like with a lot of like sort of merger and acquisition kind of technically, you know, stuff. But he often has really, you know, he's really good guests. Um, he had a guy named uh, Richard Florida on. I don't know if you know who he is, but he, he he's done no. a ton of, he's an author who's who wrote the book called Creative Class. Um, that creative class was like, you know, very, um, very, I think early in the conversation about what, what cities really are 
and why this creative class is so important and why, you know, why those people want and need to be together and how they mm. feed each other to create, you know, great ideas and creative things. Um, and so at the time that was a kind of a planning book. It was like, this is, these are the people you want. It was yeah. you know, you create this incubator sort of setting and i'm probably doing a horrible job of describing this this guy's book he's gonna be like <laughs> it sounds so, great I, i'm intrigued man i want to i want to i want to listen but when you get like so this you know professor galloway gets richard florida on the line that's a really interesting con- conversation because galloway is is advancing the theory that you know this um this COVID environment is is an accelerant you know it's 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 not a disruptor. It's not changing. We're not doing things differently. We're just going the direction we were going a lot faster because we have. Um, and I'm sure he's not the only one who said it. I'm certainly not originating the idea. But when he talks about that, when you, when you get the idea of an accelerant and you think about like the creative class and where cities, you know, are trying to happen, what cities, how cities are going to exist in the future, um, you sort of it's, it's a great lens to think about different things that are going on. I think about the, you know, so um, the current, the word eviction right now is taking on a completely different um, kind of characterization than it had before. Mm-hmm. You know, are we accelerating to a different model of, of eviction, of um, the pressure you put on a non-paying renter? Yeah. Uh, I don't know the answer, but I love, I like the structure of, you know, to think about it with. No, great topics. I mean, those are great things to think about. And uh, yeah, things are changing in front of our, our eyes and uh, hopefully, you know, you don't know if it's going the right way or the wrong way, but things are definitely changing and you know, yeah. people are asking questions that they never asked before. Now, what do you like to do outside of work? I cycle. I ride my bike. Um, so that's, you know, that's my answer to two questions. What do I like to do and how do I relax? You know, and yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, which is not to say that, I, you know, you know, you catch me racing on the weekends or anything, <laughs> um, but I have, uh, yeah, I've, I've ridden, I've ridden a bike, you know, for exercise for a long time. Um, I ran, I, I was a, I was a runner in college. I ran, I was a sprinter runner. Okay. So sprinters don't get into distance mm-hmm. running, you know, and that's all that's really available to us, you know, after college. So yeah. nobody, nobody, nobody's challenged me to race a block anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully. Um, so the low impact, you know, cycling kind of stuff where, you know, you get, you get speed, you know, you get to ride fast and, um, and, and you get to go places. And and so the older I get, the more I kind of get on my bike and just go and see something and, you know, and enjoy being outside. So that's, yeah, that's what I like to do. Yeah. I, I, I did some sprinting early in my life too. And then the transition to like longer distance running was just brutal, yeah. very brutal. I'm like, I'm not at the end yet. I want to be at the end, you know? <laughs> uh, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Oh, man. You know, uh, I, 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 have, uh, I have had a couple life-changing events. We all have, right? So, But uh, there, there are a couple things that sort of, you know, you, you think about your life as a, as a windy path. So, you know, sometimes that path winds pretty, pretty, pretty hard to the right or left. And... Um, uh, I don't know what I would have told myself other than to tell myself that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the notion that, you know, things are going to be straight and narrow and easy, um, which at 20, that's all life had shown me, you know, uh, uh, you know, a pretty good life, you know, uh, uh, you know, neither, neither, you know, super wealthy nor, you know, desperately poor, you know, somewhere in the middle and, and, and okay. Um, 
but uh, you know, no real hardships, you know, married parents, everybody's alive, you know, all good stuff. Um, and uh, I, I have four children. Um, my second, third and fourth children were twins. Um, wow. One of the twins was diagnosed with a disease um, in his first year of birth. Um, he, uh, he died at 13. He would be 16. Oh, wow. um, and so his diagnosis, his life, um, and his death, obviously, you know, were, you know, you know, bang up life changers. And, uh, I think that if I were to tell my 20 year old self, I don't need to tell my children this cause they've had this experience, but I think any 20 year old who's had the good fortune of, of having a pretty smooth ride should be, um, should be aware and empathetic, um, to a degree that a lot of people are going through a lot of stuff, um, and have, and have had some hardships and that creates, um, that creates anxiety and creates um, fear and it, and it accounts for a lot of, uh, a lot of behavior and opinions uh, that people have. So um, I think at 20, I was like, Hey, you know, the world loved me and I love the world. <laughs> yeah. you know? and, uh, and, and that's, that's, that's immaturity, but it's also lack of experience. And um, you know, for all of uh, my father's a minister. Um, so for all of the hardship that I watched him, manage on behalf of um of his congregations and things like that i never really absorbed it um and uh you know maybe that was my my own personal rocky head um but that would be that would be my advice to to anyone is to um is to know it might not always be easy and to help others who who aren't going through an easy time right now because that's going to be it's going to be you at some point thanks for sharing that that was that was great and uh, my condolences um for that it must have been that's a, whole, difficult. that's a whole different podcast. Chris. That's a different podcast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm not going to dig into it. Um, what do you, I mean, now I'm a recruiter, right? I work in the real estate industry. Um, I'm sure there's people listening to this that are trying to find jobs and become developers and maybe work, maybe become the next Tim Henkel. What, I mean, what do you look for? It doesn't have to be specifics, but like, what do you look for in hiring people generally? Like, not, you know, you're not speaking on behalf of Penrose, but just in general, like what type of people do you like to work with? Uh, well, so we are, we, you know, I really enjoy the interesting story. Someone comes in and who like sort of knows who they are. You can imagine, as I've just said, right. Um, I wish my 20 year old self had a little more depth. Um, and so when someone comes in and they've come from someplace and they, they know what made them sort of who they are, you know, that story can take on all kinds of, of, you know, varieties. Um, but you know, the person who was able to tell it and to tell it in a way that relates to, and that's why I'm interested in this job, well, that sure helps. Um, that, you know, that's, that's magnetism and that's a person who can then deliver themselves as a developer to, you know, the nonprofit who wants to execute their vision. You know, that, that, that person can have that conversation and can evolve into someone who's a really a full scale developer, you know, to know where you came from. Good answer. Well, Tim Hankel, partner and SVP at Penrose, thank you for spending uh, your time with us. Appreciate it. It's been a great time. Thanks. You got it.